Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Lauren. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Um, I'm glad to hear that uh, any topic is fair game because I will be talking about drugs in my lead. So sounds like no one will have a problem with that. But if you do, oh, well. Um, so my sobriety date is August 31st of 2020. Um, I, uh, I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. So for about the first 10 years of my life, I was living in a very rural, um, part of Northeast Ohio out in Medina County. Uh, I lived in a little tiny town there with my parents and my two brothers. And, um, I had a, a relatively normal childhood in some respects. Um, in other respects, it was a tough childhood. So um, my father was an alcoholic. Um, I watched his life get progressively worse um, when I was growing up. Uh, you know, so he went from owning his own company and, you know, being someone who was involved in our lives to eventually uh, ending up homeless. And um, my parents got divorced when I was 10. Um, and sorry, I'm getting distracted. I'm going to close the participants thing because it's distracting me. There we go. Um, so my, uh, my childhood, you know, a, a, the bad part of it was, was, um, watching my parents fight with one another, um, which they did all the time. You know, I have lots of memories of my brothers and I sitting at the top of the stairs, like holding hands, just listening to my parents, uh, scream at each other and throw things. Um, and I was very close to my father. I was a daddy's girl and uh, it was really rough for me, you know, to witness his kind of self-destruction over the years. Um, there is a lot of pressure in my family um, to, to be successful, to, to do well in school, to go to college, to have uh, what you could call a white collar career. Um, and most of that pressure comes from my mother and my mother's side of the family. Um, so I was a, a very good student. I was, um, I was an outgoing child. I was confident. I, um, was very different from my brothers. Um, my, my mother and I were not particularly close. She's actually told me, you know, once I was an adult that I was so independent as a child, um, that she didn't she didn't really think that I needed her attention. So she didn't pay attention to me. She focused most of her attention on my brothers because they just seemed to need that so much more than I did. Um, so my relationship with her over the years was very kind of fraught um, and tense, I guess you could call it. Um, so I was an alcoholic, an addict um, before I ever picked up a drink. And I remember as a child, you know, feeling that kind of, you know, what I eventually came to know is the feeling of craving. 
I remember feeling that as a child, um, you know, craving attention, um, wanting to always wanting to feel special. And, um, my first drink, you know, I, I honestly don't remember my first drink, but I know that I would drink like the, my father would leave beers sitting around the house and I would, uh, taste those and, you know, just kind of drink the ends of beers. So my first drink was probably when I was like five years old, um, because of the, you know, the exposure to his drinking. Um, but when I actually like drank, you know, intentionally drank a little bit later in life, I was about 12 years old. Um, but I don't remember the exact first time I drank. I, I, I do remember the way that drinking made me feel and it made me feel like everything was okay with the world. Um, it made me feel okay in my own skin. It made me feel comfortable with myself. Um, and it, and from the get go, you know, it was to excess always to excess. I was always a blackout drinker. Um, so yeah, so I did, I did well in school throughout my childhood. Um, my parents divorced when I was 10 and my life changed pretty drastically around that time. So as I said, we, we were living out in a very rural area. Um, and at that point when they divorced, we moved to uh, Shaker Heights, which is a, a suburb of Cleveland, um, which was just a, a totally different kind of environment than I was used to. It was like major culture shock for me. Um, and so my, um, my father at that point was out of the picture and he had, you know, he was homeless. He, um, he didn't have a driver's license anymore. Um, we didn't really, we saw him periodically, like he would come and take us out to dinner or, or something like that every once in a while. Um, but you know, a lot of times he just didn't show up. So we'd have plans with him and he, you know, for whatever reason, he just wouldn't show up. So, um, my mom has told me that, you know, she remembers me like waiting, standing in our front in the living room at the, the big window, just waiting for my dad to, to roll up. And, you know, I would wait there for hours, just you know, hoping he would come and, and he, he didn't, he didn't show up. Um, and that was pretty devastating for me because I was so close to him. Uh, it was around that time that my relationship with my mother got worse. You know, she was, uh, still had a lot of resentment towards him, a lot of anger. And unfortunately, um, was not good at keeping that from the kids. So she, you know, would basically just talk a lot of shit about my dad. Um, didn't want us seeing him at all. And I started acting out, uh, once we hit, once we moved to Shaker Heights. So this is about probably sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, you know, my, my mom, um, it was around that time when she decided to go to law school. So at this point, she was a single mom, you know, wasn't, wasn't getting any child support, was raising three kids. She was working full-time as a paralegal during the day. And she decided to go to law school at night because she wasn't making enough money to, 
support her family. Um, and so she was, she started taking classes at night. So at that point, we basically had no parents because, you know, my mom was in school in the evening. She was working full time during the day. And so my brothers and I were just kind of on our own. Um, and I started acting out a little bit to get attention. And, you know, at first I was doing things like, I remember, you know, I would, my, my mom was so stressed out because of the fact she was in law school and just had so much going on in her life. So I would like clean the entire house and, you know, try to be like the perfect kid um, so that she would be happy. And when that didn't work, when I wasn't getting the attention I wanted, I started to act out. So my grades started to decline. I started hanging out with the, the wrong crowd, you could say, um, and started drinking. And um, by the time I was in eighth grade, I um, was doing things like drinking at school. So I got suspended in eighth grade. Um, because I was basically drunk at school and, and so were a, a bunch of other students. I think a, like 10 of us got suspended for drinking at school and they made us uh, call our parents and tell them <clears throat> that we were getting suspended and that they had to come pick us up at the school and, and you know why we were getting suspended. So my mom shows up and we're in the principal's office. And as soon as she walks in, she she looks at me and she just has this look of disgust on her face and she says to me um i always knew you were going to turn out to be a bum like your father and <clears throat> that's something i would never forget um so i uh she pulled me out of that school at the end of that year because she thought i needed to you know, be in a different environment. And she enrolled me in a private Catholic school. Um, so this would be for high school. And we, I was not Catholic. I was not, um, we had got, like gone to church when I was much younger, but we had stopped doing that. But I, I never was, I was not raised Catholic. So all of a sudden I was in this Catholic high school with a bunch of kids, um, you know, who'd been going to Catholic schools together their entire lives. Um, I didn't fit in. I didn't know anyone. I, uh, was now an angry teenager and, um, I started acting out even more. So I, I ended up getting suspended my sophomore year of high school or expelled my sophomore year of high school. Um, you know, I was just a, a bad kid. I was skipping classes. I was drinking. I was smoking pot. Um, the school told me that I could write a letter of apology and stay in the school. And instead I, you know, wrote them this like scathing <laughs> criticism of Catholicism, telling them that if there was a hell, I would see them in it. And so that was the end of my Catholic school career. Um, by that point, my mom had remarried and we had moved, um, outside a little bit further away from Cleveland. So I was now in a new public school district. Um, I, so I started classes in public school. I was there for a couple months. Um, I got charged with, with truancy. I basically was just going to school in the morning, leaving and, and then going and getting high and drinking during the day. So I got charged with truancy <clears throat> and 
my mother decided to send me away. So she, um, well, first I was told I was going to like an outward bound type wilderness program. So I get on a plane um, out to Spokane, Washington. The program was in Northern Idaho. And the lady who picked me up at the airport told me that, oh, I, you know, I was like, oh, this is cool. This is like hour bound. I'll just be, you know, backpacking, camping with, with other kids. And, and she told me that, yeah, it was kind of like that, except it was for bad kids. So I get to this program and it's like a, basically like a, a boot camp. Um, and I was there for about 10 weeks. And from the boot camp, I went to a boarding school down the road. So also in Northern Idaho. Um, and it was a, basically a reform school. So I was there uh, for the next year and a half. It basically, um, it didn't entail any kind of like academics. Like it wasn't actually school. It was called an emotional growth program. Um, it was pretty traumatic. Uh, you know, they would take us on these little retreats that would last for like 24 hours straight, make us stay up all night and, you know, basically scream at us and tell us what terrible children we were. Um, and when I was about to turn 18, I told my mom that, you know, she could bring me home or I, you know, I was leaving, I was going to leave because I was going to be 18. So I, I told her that she could accept me back into the family and to, into their lives, or I was just going to kind of go do my own thing. So I did end up leaving, uh, when I turned 18 and I went back home and, um, about nine months later, I started college and I went to Boston university. So I was finally free. Um, you know, I was away from home. I was in a new city and with this newfound freedom, you know, I just went head first into drinking and using drugs. And I, and I had been away from that because I'd been isolated in Northern Idaho in the woods at this boarding school. So I didn't even have the opportunity for a while to do that. <clears throat> but now that I was free, you know, that's all I wanted to do. So I was a um, philosophy major and I thought that being a philosophy major meant that, you know, I needed to experience basically every state of mind I possibly could. Um, so my college career was just about drinking and using drugs. That's what I did. Um, I managed to graduate. Um, by the time I finished, I had basically tried every substance out there. Um, I was a, you know, a blackout drinker. I was extremely promiscuous. I was, I mean, the, the consequences were always there from the get-go. Um, so by the time I finished college, I had experienced, you know, lots of terrible consequences like car accidents and um, broken relationships. Uh, so after I graduated from college, I moved out to Portland, Oregon. I was seeing a, a guy who I'd met in Boston who was a uh, morphine addict. And he and I decided that we were going to go out to Portland and, and be sober together. So 
what being sober meant to us at that point in time was that we wouldn't be using any hard drugs. So we were still drinking and smoking weed. Um, after being in Portland for a while, I decided, well, the two of us decided that we wanted to travel. So we ended up saving a whole bunch of money and uh, we went to Southeast Asia and India for nine months. Um, and for a little bit of time, I was able to kind of keep things under control in terms of my drinking because I wanted to, you know, there were other things I wanted to do. Um, in my mid twenties is when I had my first kind of moment of clarity, I guess you could call it. Um, although that moment of clarity happened under the influence. So I was I was in South America, I was traveling in South America and I had taken this um, like peyote type substance, uh, mescaline derivative. And so I was tripping, you know, for like days and I had this experience where I was talking to a cat and this cat told me that in order to find peace and, and serenity and happiness in my life, I needed to be sober. And so when I got back to the States, I was back in Portland. I decided I was going to try and be sober. Um, a few months after that, I started having like extreme pain. So I was <clears throat> all of a sudden uh, experiencing this terrible back pain, my, my lower back. Um, and it got so bad, it got to the point where I was actually like unable to walk. My entire right leg went numb. Um, and I ended up getting diagnosed with um, herniated discs in my, in my lower back and degenerative disc disease. So my sobriety, you know, my newfound sobriety went right down the toilet because I was now being prescribed painkillers. Um, that's kind of all the doctors really seemed like they could do for me. Uh, the pain was so bad that I, you know, even the painkillers after a certain point weren't working. So I was drinking with the painkillers. Um, and it was, it was about then that my addiction took a kind of a nosedive and, and took a turn for the worse. So um, I started experiencing consequences. Like I uh, ended up losing my job. I was working at Planned Parenthood and I, I, they gave me an opportunity to stay. I was, I was told that I could go to treatment. Um, you know, I was like drawing people's blood and I was under the influence of, of narcotics, um, while at work. So they told me I could go to treatment and keep my job, which I did. And then a year later, you know, I was still using and I, uh, I lost that job. Um, I also, you know, there was a relationship that was destroyed and um, that I lost around that time. Uh, so I, I was, it was about that time when I, when I decided to go to AA and I went to my first AA meeting. So I was back in 2006 in Portland. Um, my, uh, my roommate kicked me out of the house. So there were, there were all these things happening that made me think that I, I really needed to get help. And it was clear that I couldn't, um, do it on my own. So I decided to try this AA thing out. I, I don't remember much about going to meetings there. I did get a sponsor. Um, 
I was really turned off by the higher power concept. And in Portland, you know, the meetings compared to, to here in Cleveland, they weren't as, as gaudy, but for me, it was like any mention of God was, was too much. Um, so I, you know, I didn't last very long in the program. I was just kind of in and out, um, for a while. And there was a period of time where I was able to stay sober, I think for about five months. And during that period of time, I decided that I wanted to apply to law school. So I applied to law school. I got a full scholarship to a law school here in Cleveland. So I decided to come back home, um, moved back to Cleveland, bought a house with my partner and started law school. And I uh, was a terrible student. I managed to keep my scholarship the entire time. So I was luckily, you know, law school is like basically your entire grade is based on one final exam at the end of the semester. So for a student like me, that worked out really well because I, I had somewhat of a, a photographic memory. So I was able to, you know, cram the night before the exam and still get an A, even though I was a raging alcoholic. Uh, the entire time. So I um, I managed to finish law school, managed to keep my scholarship, graduated um, in the top 20% of my class, even though I was drinking very heavily throughout that entire period of time. And using drugs, you know, when they presented, presented themselves, I wasn't actively seeking them out most of the time, but if they were there, I was using them. I mean, it, it could be anything. I didn't even need to know what it was. That's the kind of addict I was. Um, if it was going to change the way I felt, then I would put it in my body. No questions asked. Um, so I, um, I finished law school. Um, well, I should say that during law school, a, a couple of pretty significant things happened. Um, one of them is that I came home one day and my, my two brothers were sitting on my front porch and, uh, they were waiting for me and they were basically waiting to have like a little intervention. And at that time I was, I was driving a, uh, rental car because I had totaled my car in a blackout, totaled my car. And I, the only thing I remember about that accident, because I was completely blacked out, I kind of came to the, the, you know, at the moment of impact and my dog was with me. And so the only thing I remember is crashing and my, my dog flying forward from the back seat into the front seat and hitting her head on the, uh, on the dash. And luckily she was okay. Um, and luckily I was okay, but, uh, the reality is I, you know, I, I have no idea what I even hit. I could have killed someone and I, you know, I wouldn't know. I know that when I woke up the next morning, my vehicle was in my driveway. It was completely totaled and it was, um, it wasn't drivable. Like I couldn't even, I, I had to get it towed and I had to get it towed out of my driveway as quickly as possible because I was terrified that the police were gonna show up because it was, a, you know, it was basically a hit and run. 
Um, so my brothers had noticed that I was driving this rental car and they didn't believe the story that I gave them. I don't remember what the story was, but they didn't believe it. And they, they told me that, um, they knew I needed help that, you know, things were out of control in my life. Um, and that they wanted to help me. They wanted to help me get, go to treatment. And, you know, I basically shrugged them off and told them that I had it under control and then I would, I would get help. I would do something about it. And, you know, that was enough for them at that point. Um, my family, in my family, competence is very highly valued. Um, so my brothers, you know, when I tell them I can, I can do something, I can handle it. They tend to believe me. Um, and so they, they kind of let it go. So I graduated from law school. I, uh, I decided to start my own law practice. Um, I had been working in the legal industry for many years between college and law school. So I felt pretty comfortable doing that. And it, and it, you know, things went pretty well at first. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best idea to be my own boss because left to my own devices, you know, I was, I didn't have any structure. I was doing whatever I wanted, um, but things were going all right. And about a year out, so I'd been doing it for about a year. I, I met this guy, he was a client. Um, I, I went over to his place to have him sign some paperwork and he wanted to take me out to dinner. So we, we ended up going to a bar. Um, during dinner, we somehow the conversation turned to cocaine and we both discovered that we loved cocaine. So that started, uh, that was the beginning of a, a pretty terrible relationship. Um, I started hanging out with this guy all the time started using cocaine all the time uh, to the point where it was almost every single day, you know, he was buying it for me. I knew he was um, not the kind of person I would ever like date for any other reason. The, you know, the only reason I was hanging out with this guy was because of the drugs. Um, I knew he was someone that I would never introduce to my family. And he was the the kind of person who is like really charismatic um and charming but you you know you just you know something is off so he was really controlling and possessive and um he quickly became pretty verbally emotionally abusive and I stayed with him. I stayed with him um, for about a year and a half. And over the course of that time, um, I pretty much lost my law practice. So I, I just, I just stopped working. You know, as your own boss, if you're not <laughs> doing the job, then things tend to deteriorate pretty quickly. So I, I would, you know, I would fulfill whatever obligations I had, but I wasn't like getting new clients. Um, I was showing up to court at eight in the morning, nine in the morning, high on cocaine. And um, it got to the point where I was 
using on a daily basis. I was suicidal. Um, and he eventually became physically abusive. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of lost all self-esteem, dignity, and, and just really felt like I had no idea who I was at that point. Um, but eventually, you know, I knew that I had to stop seeing this guy and he was, you know, he was not only abusive, but he was, he was threatening to, um, report me to disciplinary counsel for attorneys to, you know, cause he started out as a client. I slept with a client, which is illegal. Um, he was threatening to tell them that I was a drug addict and he was making these threats so that I wouldn't leave him. And, um, you know, I, so I didn't, it was a really difficult situation for me to get out of because I was, I didn't want to, you know, e even though I didn't have much of a career left at that point, I also didn't want to lose my license and, and destroy everything. Um, but I stopped seeing him and, but I didn't stop using. So about a month after I, I stopped seeing him, I ran into a friend, um, a, a using friend and I started smoking crack with him. And so at that point I switched from, from cocaine to crack. And, and that was, you know, from that point on, it was crack. Um, I eventually started using heroin because I just needed something to help me come down. Um, it was not a substance that I particularly liked, but I, you know, would be up for days on end. And, um, I eventually started using IV heroin. Um, and that guy, the guy I had been seeing, um, did not, he kind of stayed in the picture in the sense that he was like stalking me this entire time. And, I had started seeing this other guy and um, we went out to eat one night. And when I left the restaurant, I got a text um, from the old guy. And he, you know, he, he, he basically was like, it was a Mexican restaurant. And he said, how was the Mexican food? So he knew I was at this restaurant. You know, I have no idea how he knew this, but I became pretty terrified at that point that he was kind of like, following me or had someone following me or had like a GPS device on my phone. Um, and, uh, this new guy that I was seeing became, you know, pretty scared that, um, that something was going to happen to me. And so he, he told me that I needed to, to tell my family or the police. And I agreed that I would do that. Um, but he didn't believe me. So it was very lucky for me that he didn't believe me. Um, I ended up um, experiencing my first overdose and I was alone in my house. Um, and it, that night, the night I overdosed, he ended up um, sending an email to someone in my family, letting them know that, you know, he thought that I was being stalked and that they should be very concerned about me. So my family receives this email and I was actually supposed to have been going out of town that weekend, uh, going camping with my father and my brothers. And when I didn't show up um, and they had received this email, 
you know, they became really worried about what was going on in my life and where I was. So my father, you know, called my mom, let her know that he had received this email and that she needed to come over to my house. So she ends up coming over to my house. Um, they saw my car in the driveway. They, they knew I was home. They heard my dogs, um, but they couldn't get in. So they called the police and the police broke in and found me. And I had overdosed about 18 hours um, earlier. And I was, uh, my blood pressure was like 50 over 20. I was um, basically almost dead. And um, I was in a coma for five days. I was in intensive care for that whole time. Um, I, I uh, finally woke up, but you know, my family didn't know this entire time. Um, if I would wake up, they didn't know if I would have suffered brain damage. Um, and they didn't even know, you know, they didn't, they weren't even aware that I was using, uh, drugs. They knew I had a drinking problem. They didn't know, um, that I was using things like heroin. So this, you know, this whole, this kind of blew their world apart. Um, they're sitting there in intensive care, waiting to see if I'll ever wake up again. And so you know, you would think that that would have been enough for, to get me to stop um, using. And I did go to, so my, my mother got me into treatment. I went to um, Glen Bay, which is here in Ohio. Uh, I was in treatment there for a month. I got out of there, um, was sober for a couple of weeks, went back to the abusive relationship, uh, relapsed. I also had picked up charges um, when I overdosed. They ended up charging me with possession. Um, so I was offered treatment in lieu of conviction. So I was basically on probation um, for a year. And I had to complete treatment during that time. Well, I did complete treatment. I ended up going to treatment over the next two years. After that first overdose, I was in treatment four times. Um, and I would get out. Uh, stay sober for a couple months, maybe, and then relapse. Um, so things get a little bit foggy, uh, my memory from that, that period of time. Um, I was going to meetings periodically. I was in and out of AA. I never took it seriously. I never saw it as a solution for me. You know, I saw it as, I, th I saw AA as, as something that would help me get sober, like in the very short term. And then I could do it on my own. I didn't need, you know, the group. I didn't need a program like that. And, um, you know, I had this kind of bias against AA. My, I remember my dad um, telling me when I was really young that, you know, he didn't do AA because AA was for weak people. Um, and that, you know, we didn't need anything. We didn't need that kind of help. Um, so I, I think I just had this like bias that had been kind of instilled in me. And like I said earlier, I, I had always struggled with the, the concept of a higher power. Um, and I, I just truly believed that I was strong and, and independent enough to, to get sober on my own. Um, but I saw the benefit of, of going to AA for a little while. 
because, you know, I needed that period of time to kind of get my head together. And then, you know, once I'd been sober for a few weeks and my mind was clear, then I thought I could handle it on my own. And of course that, that never worked. Um, so let's see, um, just to kind of sum up that period of time, I ended up, um, well, I, so I got to the end of that year of probation and I was supposed to have completed treatment. I was supposed to report back and let them know that I was sober and I had gone through treatment. I didn't report back. I was still using obviously. Um, so they issued a warrant for my arrest. Um, I was kind of on the run from the police at this point, I had sold all of my, I had run out of money. I had sold all of my belongings, like air conditioning units, mattresses. I mean, anything you could think of, I was trading. I was basically giving to my crack dealer. Um, so I had like nothing left. My house was like empty. Um, I still owned a house, but eventually I lost that too. Uh, when I was in jail. So, so they issued this warrant. Um, I was, I had kind of moved in with my crack dealer at that point because I, I couldn't be in my house because the police were always lo there looking for me. Um, my parents ended up filing burglary, felony burglary charges against me when I uh, broke into their property. They were out of town, I believe. And I didn't steal a whole lot. I stole some bottles of uh, alcohol. I stole a little bit of money and food. And that was the biggest reason I went over there was to get food. I, I literally hadn't eaten in days um, and didn't have a cent to my name. So they filed these felony burglary charges against me. So then I had another warrant and they, the police ended up um, beating my door down, tasing me and, and dragging me out and arresting me and hauling me off to jail. Um, so I, um, I did two months in jail and then I went to treatment again, court ordered treatment, came out of there um, into sober living. It was the first time I was ever willing to try something like sober living. But the only reason I agreed to do sober living was so that they would let me out of treatment sooner. You know, I was always manipulating. I was always trying to get what I wanted. Um, so I was in sober living for about two months when I decided that, you know, I didn't want to be around other addicts. I needed to move into my own apartment. So I moved into my apartment. Um, it was right around that time I got off probation and I, uh, I had my final meeting with my probation officer. I'd been sober, I guess, for about, well, including jail, it had been probably four months, five months, maybe. Um, and I had drugs waiting for me at home. You know, I, I went to go see my probation officer to report in and I had drugs waiting for me. I was gonna get high as soon as I left the probation office because, you know, I didn't want 
if I was going to get sober, I was going to get sober. It wasn't because the criminal justice system forced me to get sober. Um, so I, um, I was in this apartment. Uh, I started using again, spent all my money. Um, and <clears throat> got to the point where, you know, I had to, I didn't, I had, I had to do something. I had, to, I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't pay my rent anymore. Um, I didn't have any money to buy drugs. So I decided I was going to go stay with an old friend out in Washington state. You know, she was gonna, I was going to basically live in an RV in her driveway and get sober. Um, and she knew I had something, some personal problem going on, but she did not know the extent of it. Um, so I get out there, I was, I went out there with my dog, uh, and her husband eventually kicked me out of the house. I was, I didn't get sober, of course. Um, so then I was living out in Washington state in a tent with my dog and my dog was absolutely terrified of me. Um, you know, I was driving around Washington smoking crack in my car with my dog. Um, and she was absolutely terrified and did not trust me. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty bad time. And I was, I was, um, suicidal. Um, the only reason I didn't commit suicide is because of my dog. Like she literally kept me alive. Um, I just, you know, having her to take care of, like, I just, otherwise I'd be dead. Um, so eventually, uh, my old crack dealer in Cleveland told me that if I came back to Cleveland, he would, um, give me a place to stay and he would help me get off of heroin. He had become a friend of mine at that point and and um, that's what I did. I ended up coming back to Cleveland. I moved in with him. He was um, getting me Suboxone off the street. And I uh, was able to get off heroin while I was living with him. Um, but I kept, you know, I kept smoking crack and I kept drinking. And um Anytime I was, anytime I relapsed while I was living with him, he would throw me out. So I was going back and forth between his house and living in my car. Um, and eventually he started getting violent. Um, when I, if I relapsed, he would, he would get violent and throw me out. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty shitty time. And I, um, I was living in my car. I, this, I call this my moment of clarity. So I was, I was at Edgewater park, which is a big park here on the water in Cleveland. And, um, I was in my car. I just used the last of my drugs. <clears throat> I had no money and, um, it was really early in the morning and there was a kite festival going on. There were all these people getting set up for this kite festival. And so there were all these tables set up around the grass and people were flying kites. 
And I noticed um, that they had, you know, these people had left their belongings kind of sitting around these tables. And I thought, wow, these people would be so easy to steal from right now because they're, they're all looking up into the sky at their kites. Um, and I needed money. So I had this thought that I was going to steal um, from these people. And I pulled the um, visor down in my car and looked at myself in the mirror. And I had no idea who I was looking at. Um, I realized I had this thought uh, that the only thing I truly wanted to steal from these people was the, the joy that was on their faces, the look of joy on their, on their faces. And I did not think that that was something I could ever have again. Um, I was absolutely miserable every single day. I um, wished I had not woken up. I wished I had, you know, every time I overdosed, I, I, I was mad that I had survived the overdose. Um, and at that point, I think it was, I had overdosed about 12 times. Um, so I, uh, I just looked at myself in the mirror and I, I, I didn't know who I was. And, um, you know, I'd been coming to AA, uh, for long enough to know that, that people got better, um, that it was possible, but I did, I truly did not believe it was possible for me. I had, I really like, I had no personality left at that point. All I was doing was using, I was either getting high or looking for money and doing things to get money to get high 24 seven. That's all I did. Um, and, but I knew I, I didn't want to die. You know, I knew I didn't want to die for my addiction. Like I wanted to, I wanted to, even though I didn't believe it was possible for me, I wanted to, to see and I don't know how, like, I don't know how I still had that little tiny bit of hope um, in me, but I decided at that point that I was going to try to get sober. Um, and I still uh, didn't think that I needed to go to AA though. I, I still thought I could do it on my own. Um, I ended up getting on Vivitrol, which if you don't know what that is, it's a, an injection that you get each month and it, it prevents you from getting high off of opiates. So I, I was on Vivitrol, um, for over a year. So I was able to stay off of heroin. Um, I would relapse periodically, um, on crack or alcohol, but for the most part, I was, I was staying sober, but it was. I wasn't happy. Uh, I was, you know, I wasn't emotionally well. I was very volatile. And um, when I did relapse, you know, it was always just instant destruction, instant. You know, every, every time I relapsed, I was in the hospital because I was overdosing. Um, so I was the, my boyfriend at the time, one day he, he said to me, I had just relapsed again. And he said to me, why the fuck don't you try AA? Like it works for everyone else. Why won't you do it? 
And, uh, you know, I had had this thought myself many times over the years, but it just hit me at that point. Like, yeah, why won't I try it? Like, what is holding me back? Um, and so I, I decided to, to really give it a go. So I, I remembered, um, these West side agnostic meetings that I had gone to, um, a few times, a few years back. And I decided to go back to those because, you know, I, like I said, I had the higher power issue. Um, and those were basically the only meetings that I ever felt comfortable in. So I started going to West side agnostics and I started talking to people. Um, I, you know, before that, when I had been in meetings, I was completely shut off. I didn't trust anyone. I wouldn't talk to people. I kept to myself. Um, and when I finally was able to make that change, that's when I finally started working for me. When I was able to connect to other people, um, and, you know, I know now that 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 is one of the biggest reasons, at least for me, that the program works is building that community and engaging in the program, um, making connections with other people that that's why AA has worked for me. Um, but it was really it was really slow going for me at first. Um, but I did it, you know, I did it and I kept coming back and life started to get better um a little bit at a time um i had a sobriety date of um originally had a sobriety date of july 1st 2018 um and i ended up relapsing in, in the beginning of the pandemic so by that point in time um you know i was going to at least 3 to 4 meetings a week um, I had lots of friends in the program. I was uh, secretary of a meeting. You know, I was I was really fully engaged in the program. And when COVID started and meetings went to Zoom, you know, I just I was I was working on Zoom. I was not enjoying the Zoom meetings. I stopped going to so many meetings. And you know what I people have shown over and over again, if you stop going to meetings and you kind of pull yourself away from the program, that's what ends up happening. So that's what ended up happening for me. Um, and so I relapsed in the, in the summer of 2020 um, and overdosed. Um, but because I was fully immersed in the program, you know, I had a community of people around me who cared and they they gathered around me and um, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, uh, who I met in Westside Agnostics, um, you know, he got me into detox. His mom was up here. She's also in the program. Um, they got me into detox. So I was only out there using for a few days. Um, and it was it was really terrifying. You know, at that point, I'd been sober for over two years. That was the longest I'd ever been sober, um, you know, over 12 years in and out of the rooms. And I had never been sober before that for more than four or five months. Um, 
so it was really terrifying to kind of see that, see that happen. Um, but it really, you know, it really kind of made it hit home for me. Um, the reality is, is that this is a chronic progressive disease and I'm going to have to, to work at it for the rest of my life. Um, for a very long period of time, that fact really pissed me off. You know, I, I wanted to kind of just get sober and then forget about it. I wanted to just be sober and, and, and not just to, you know, now I'm just a normal person. Now I, I don't have to think about that stuff anymore, but uh, you know, for whatever it's worth it, that's just not the way it works. Um, it is something I'm going to have to work on for the rest of my life. Um, but the reality is it doesn't bother me anymore. You know, I, I like it. Um, I like the program now. I like being in recovery. I like the fact that I'm uh, a recovering addict um, and I'm grateful for it. Um, so after um, about a year after my original sobriety date, <clears throat> actually it was a year to the day, um, Dan had planned this uh, party for me my one year sobriety anniversary party. And I had just found out that day, um, I had been diagnosed with breast cancer and I found out that day um, that it had come back. So this was now the second cancer diagnosis. So I ended up <clears throat> going through surgery um, and radiation. And that was, uh, definitely one of the biggest struggles I've had, um, in sobriety. Um, but I was able to stay sober through that process because of the program. And every single day, every day, I was terrified that I was going to use. Um, but I didn't, and I didn't have to, you know, because of the program, I was able to talk about it. I was able to talk about my feelings with my friends. And, um, that's been one of the biggest things for me too. Like it, you know, people say that secrets keep us sick and it's just, it's so true. Like when I don't talk about, um, the obsessive thoughts in my head, that's when I end up, you know, they, they, it's like a runaway train I end up using every time. Um, but if I just put them out there and talk about them with people, you know, they become okay. They lose their power. Um, so yeah, my life has changed just drastically, um, since I've been sober and in the program. Um, I was, a daily crack and heroin user. I was um, about 110 pounds. I was eating like once every five days. I um, destroyed my family. You know, I, my family wasn't even talking to me. I wasn't allowed anywhere near my family. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, I destroyed my career. 
I was in and out of the emergency room all the time because I was, you know, I had skin infections. I was covered in bruises. Um, and now, um, you know, I own a home. I'm married to a wonderful man who is also in recovery. Um, my dog trusts me again. <laughs> um, my family is back in my life and I have awesome relationships with all of them. I have friends that care about me. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I just started a, a in-person women's meeting a few months ago. That's been really awesome. And I, I'm now teaching a, a yoga class, um, for women in recovery. Um, and I have my career back and I actually have my dream job. Like I'm, I'm practicing law again and I get to help people who are being, uh, evicted from their homes. So my life has changed drastically. I mean, I, I never, ever, ever thought that I could have anything, um, comparable to what I have today. I just didn't believe that it was possible for me. Um, but again, you know, it takes hard work. It takes being honest about what I'm going through. It means I have to um, trust other human beings, which is never easy. Um, I have to put myself out there. I have a sponsor. I do service work. Um, and I'm just incredibly grateful. Um, I'm incredibly grateful that I was able, you know, to find that small, tiny kernel of hope, um, and to really give the program a shot, um, because without it, I absolutely know hundred percent, I would not be alive and talking to you today. Um, and with that, I think I'm going to stop talking. Thanks everybody.